the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thank you for joining us today for On the Road with Jesus, hosted by Rhody Fisher. As a Christian mom for over 40 years and a teacher of the Bible in public schools for 25 years, Rhody will take you on a journey with some of her friends as they share their experiences and testimonies from their walk with Christ. You'll see that you are not alone in your search for God, your victories with Him, or your failures. Welcome to On the Road with Jesus. Now, here's your host, Rhody Fisher. Thank you for joining us on the road with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for this new day. Lord, thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Father, we ask that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be pleasing to you. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to introduce our special guest. I think I met Anthony in real life. I mean, I'd heard about him and saw him, but I think I met him maybe five years ago um, through a ministry called MTM. So um, my husband and I go way back with George Saig. Um, He um, not only lived with us, but my husband and I, I mean, my husband and him started the ministry together to Muslims. And um, we were involved in that ministry for, I'm going to say, maybe 16, 17 years. And he has had um, a thing called, he's done it. Um, he's had a, a a conference that he has ever since we started the ministry called um, Our Strong Tower. And I met Anthony, I want to say five years ago. I'm not 100% sure, but it could be five years ago. Welcome, Anthony Rogers. Hey, thank you so much. And it was good to hear that little backstory. I, I know that you and George go way back, but I didn't exactly know the relationship there. I didn't know that it was ministry related. I thought maybe you guys just attended church together or maybe you were in the same area and, and somehow all of you struck up a friendship or something. But it's, it's nice to know you guys had an involvement with him and the ministry. Yeah, Anthony, if you could, for our guest again, would you give a small, like a five, 10 minute version of your life and how you got saved, how, how you got born again, like Nicodemus was wondering. how. To sure. Do. So I currently live in Greenville, South Carolina, but I was actually born and raised in Southern California. I was born in an Anaheim hospital. We lived in Santa Ana. Wow. And I grew up in Orange County. And during the eighties is when I was becoming a teenager. And at that time there was an influx of gangs I'm not sure what things look like now over on that end of things. But for me, the experience was just being inundated with gangs. Uh, People from uh, L.A. County and Riverside and so forth were sort of coming down into Orange County because of different things that were happening up there. And, And I got involved in all of that and was getting in a good bit of trouble. So my parents, believing that the problem was my environment and not my heart, decided to relocate. So we moved from California to Las Vegas of all places. So yeah, we went to Las Vegas, Nevada, and you can really find trouble anywhere. Right. And, and Vegas is not a big step from something like uh, Orange County or Los Angeles, at least at the time I lived there. And so all it took was me finding the same sort of group and falling in with them as Proverbs one talks about, you know, falling in with, with people of this sort and, And uh, I was back at it. So I I was 17 at the time we moved there. I finally got in big trouble when I was 18. I was arrested for stealing a car. And that was just one of many things I was doing as a as a thug on the streets. And eventually all of that came to a screeching halt. I was in jail. And the the interesting thing, and I, I love to tell the story less because of getting to talk about myself and more because of how I think God's providence shines through in this. But one of the elements of this that, that I think speaks to this is I was put in a jail cell with a self-professed devil worshiper. Now, 
the, yeah, the interesting thing is this guy was nicer in terms of his behavior and his way of relating to you than many of the other people I was in there with. So he was he was very amicable, but he had an axe to grind against the Bible, which is passing strange because I expressed no interest in the Bible, but he kept going after it and kept trying to get me to agree with him in all the things that he was saying about the Lord, about his word and that sort of thing. And I just kept saying, yeah, I said, it sounds to me like you're making some of this up. And eventually he said, I'll tell you how to get a Bible. So he told me how to get a Bible. I wrote a kite. That's how you write a formal request to get a Bible. And rem remember, this was 30 years ago. And I still remember the, the lady who provided a Bible to me. I know her name. I never met her, but it came back with her name on it. Her name was Bonnie Polly. So if by chance she ever hears this, she'll know oh, yeah. that I am a fruit of her ministry. She provided Bibles for people that were incarcerated. And I, I got the Bible and the guy tried to show me the stuff that he was saying and he couldn't. And so then it was sitting there, you know, on my bunk, I'm laying there and I've got a lot of time, as you can imagine. So I thought, well, I might as well read this thing. You know, I had no interest in it, but I've got it and I've got nothing to do. So I started reading it. And as I read it, I was terrified. Now, remember, I was in, you know, I was thrown in jail. I was apprehended by men. I prior to that thought I was unstoppable, but they apprehended me. And now I'm reading of a God who's got all of heaven and earth at his disposal. He banished our first parents from the garden after taking a piece of fruit. So I knew that he didn't trifle with sin. And <laughs> he, you know, then deluges the world in a flood under Noah and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire out of heaven. Again, this shows that he's got all of heaven and earth at his disposal. He doesn't wink at sin. And I thought if I was caught by men. How do I think I'm going to escape this God? And that sort of stuff was working away at me and it was bothering me. I read the entire Bible in two months. And then I was moved from the jail. I was convicted and I was put into prison and I was quarantined for a month. They put you in quarantine before releasing you into the general prison population. And there you're locked down for 23 hours. You only get out for an hour to shower and exercise or whatever. And so I had another month to read the Bible, and I read it all the way through again. And I still didn't understand the gospel and all of this, but I understood my sin. I understood God's holiness and the fact that I was in trouble. Those two things together spell trouble, God's holiness, my sinfulness. And it wasn't until I got out into the general population, was able to go to the prison yard chapel and actually heard a gospel message that I knew what the gospel was. I believed it. I repented and turned to Christ. And I was so overjoyed. This is the beginning of my interest in ministering to Muslims and not only Muslims. They're just one group that I came to focus on. But I was in a context that was hostile to the gospel. I assumed that this good news, I kind of just jumped past this, but I was so overwhelmed at the announcement that my sins were forgiven. I couldn't believe it. It was such a radical message. And I thought everybody would be overjoyed to hear this. So I started telling everybody in, in a prison, mind you. And uh, these aren't people that are there because of their good behavior. So when I found out that they weren't so happy about the message, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a newsflash because, again, I just thought everybody would jump at this. And instead of jumping at it, they were lashing out at me for it. And I realized in that context, you know, I was on the streets. I was potentially going to die because of doing worthless things. How could I not have the same zeal to talk about Christ to people? And so I continued to speak of Christ and, and didn't fear the consequences. And uh, But that brought me into contact with Muslims, members of the Nation of Islam, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Moonies, you know, the Unification Church, Ekinkar, you name it, they were all there. And that was then where my interest in evangelism and apologetics and that sort of thing was born. And I kept doing it when I got out of prison two and a half years later. I went in in 1993, so that was 30 years ago. Wow. Got out in the sometime late in 95, and I've been serving the Lord ever since. I eventually went on to go, got my high school diploma, then a college degree, then a seminary education, and eventually was ordained uh, to, to be a pastor. And now I serve in prison ministry, in fact. Wow, that's that's a beautiful story. For some reason, that bypassed me. I, I never got to that because I was always interested in all the things that you had to say uh, about the Quran and everything else that you talked about. But um, can I just ask you, what did your mother think? <laughs> so I mean, uh, she moved you, you know, to a different state. Yeah. Because of her love for you not to be in trouble. Yeah. So my mom and dad were different in this respect. I mean, first of all, they, they had a remarkable marriage. My dad died a few years ago. My mom's still alive and well. But uh, 
uh, they, they had a remarkable relationship. I never once saw them fight in 50 years as a kid growing up. And I think that's remarkable. I think people naturally will have some arguments and so forth. And so to have never seen them fight just always uh, stands out to me. And I, I mentioned that because at the same time, they both looked at my actions differently. So my mom would often find some way of uh, excusing me or finding a way to exonerate me. So she'd often say things like it was my friends. I mentioned that I was moved because they thought they were changing my environment. It would help. Uh, my mom would often think it was my friends, but I was just as much at the bottom of the trouble we got into as any of them were. And there were other things that she would do that, that sort of just uh, threw a cloak over it. My dad, on the other hand, you know, I remember him saying one time, he said to me, he goes, I could see somebody being in the wrong place at the wrong time once. He says, yeah. maybe twice. <laughs> he says, but three times, four times, five, because I was constantly in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that kind of stuck with me. And I, I realized, you know, he saw through me and knew I was getting into trouble and doing so of my own accord. But he, he would always uh, do it in a way that, that didn't, uh, come into conflict with my mom per se. And, and, uh, you know, when, when she thought it would be good for us to move, he, he, you know, quickly said, let's do it. And we moved. And, uh, but, uh, later when I was converted, I, I think, I think that they kind of just looked at it as me maturing, maybe getting older, but I can assure you, I mean, when I look back, the person who went from being a criminal who went to jail and prison, who came out an entirely different person, th there's no other explanation for that than the converting work of the Spirit. Because I, here's the thing that really got me was as I was reading the Bible. I'm reading the Bible and I was listening to people give their explanations for why they were in there. And I was looking for an excuse myself. So I would hear people say, I came from a broken home. That's why my life was so messed up. And so I'm hearing that and wanting desperately to latch on to some excuse to justify myself. And I heard that and I think, wait a minute, I didn't come from a broken home. My parents got along perfectly. And then I'd hear somebody say we were poor. And then I thought to myself, well, we were never rich, but not poor either. I mean, my dad always had a you know good job and always provided, always had food, clothing, shelter, everything a person needed. And then I would look at all these excuses and think of other people in the same circumstances who did well in spite of those circumstances. And I kept thinking, here I am in all these good circumstances. I still did bad. And I knew of situations where I intentionally went out of my way to do wrong when there was no other excuse for it. Uh, I, I don't want to tell too many accounts because <laughs> I don't want to sound like it's glorifying those things. But I mean, I, I uh, well, I'll, I'll mention this as an example. I mentioned I stole cars. Well, one of the things I would do because I got such a thrill out of it was I would take a person's car from one driveway and park it in the next door neighbor's driveway just because it was thrilling to me. <laughs> and, and and so my point is, I enjoyed this. This was my nature. And I knew that this person, me, was desperately wicked. And that's why it was so terrifying when I read the Bible and read about God's wrath towards sinners, I thought there's no excuse for somebody like me. If anybody thought they had an excuse, I knew I didn't. So people, yeah. other people could say what they want. But for me, I knew that I was this guilty sinner that deserved God's justice. And so, uh, oh, so my, my point is that with my mom, uh, you know, she she would often make excuses for me. And I, I saw through all those excuses through reading the Bible and eventually when I was converted, I think she just thought that I was getting older and, and stuff like that. And uh, I, I think she may have a little bit of a different impression now. It's been 30 years, but yeah. uh, there's been more to build on. But, yeah, I, I think that initially she probably just thought, he, you know, he's learned his lesson. He's a little bit older now. He's matured. No, but I, I would have continued doing all those things if the Lord didn't arrest me because, again, I enjoyed those things. I, I was a different person and I, I liked what I was doing. Well, you know, um, that's kind of what you look for when people say what we call the sinner's prayer. We look for a change. Um, you know, sometimes it doesn't happen right away. Sometimes it's a gradual change. You know, they may stop swearing or, you know, my girlfriend said she continued. She continued to um, I, some people wouldn't think gambling is a problem or drinking is a problem, but she continued to do that. Um, for several years, because all of her friends were, you know, they would meet once a month to just drink all they could and, and gamble, you know, together, like in a group. And um, she kept thinking, if I, if I, she told everybody about Jesus, but 
she kept thinking, if I if I give this up, I'm going to have to give up all my friends because the sixteen of, or there's sixteen of us, and we're all here meeting once a month, and I don't want to give this up. And finally, um, she didn't have to give it up because she was talking so much about Jesus all the time that they asked her to leave. But hmm. anyhow, um, there's a change that happens, and so that was your change too. Um, the Bible says we will know them by their fruit. And so if there's no change, then, you know, we wonder if they really meant the sinner's prayer. Um, So we're on a topic today called understanding the Trinity. And we're going from the perspective of a Christian or, you know, trying to understand that for even the non-Christian, because we'll tell people we believe in a triune God. Um, You know, there's, there's that trying to explain it through the ice method. You know, you've got water method, the ice, you've got same H2O, but maybe it's not the same when it changes. But, you know, it's steam, the water or ice, but it's still a form of water. Or the egg method, which is, you know, the shell, the yolk, and and then, you know, the, the white part, which is, you know, just all an egg, but it's one egg. So what say you about understanding the Trinity? Yeah, so I don't use illustrations like that unless it is to make this point that our God is greater than all created reality, because the fact is that every illustration breaks down. Water, for example, or H2O has these different forms that it takes, solid, liquid and gas. But these are successive. And when we talk about the persons of the Trinity, we don't mean that God is at one time a father and then later changes and becomes the son and later changes and becomes the spirit. And with with an egg, what you're talking about there is three parts of one whole. So you have the shell, the white, and then the the yolk. But the persons of the Trinity are not like three pieces put together that together form this whole. Each person, rather, possesses the entirety of the divine nature. And no doubt— that's somewhat difficult to comprehend, but should we think anything less of the God who made us, right? Scripture, this is something I don't think people sufficiently reflect on. We use terms very loosely, like the word wonderful. Mm -hmm. We might say that was a wonderful cheeseburger or something like that uh, that we ate yesterday. The Bible doesn't talk that way. The word wonderful is never used in Scripture for anyone other than God or something that God does. So, for example, it says you alone are wonderful or you alone perform wonders throughout Scripture. And the point that I'm making here is that word wonderful is a word that could, in certain contexts, be translated uh, beyond comprehension or, uh, you know, transcending understanding. Think, for example, of uh, Manoah when he asked, when the angel of the Lord, which is a divine theophany in, in Judges 13, he appears to Manoah to announce the coming birth of Samson, the, the one who will deliver Israel. And Manoah wants to know who he is. He, he's thinking, are you just a man or are you something more than that? And the angel of the Lord, the same one who appeared to Moses in Exodus 3, mm-hmm. right, who identified himself as I am who I am. Manoah says, what is your name? And he says, why do you ask my name? It is beyond comprehension. And the word there is the same word that's translated wonderful. And and the point that I'm driving at is that God goes beyond all these things. So these illustrations may, to a point, begin to show something of the idea of a plurality and a unity, but they fall short of that plurality and unity that's true of God. So in God, we have a being who is simultaneously one in many, but the, the oneness of the persons of the Trinity is far greater far more radical than what you see in the case of an egg or something like that. Because think about it. For example, here's the real mystery. When we say that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God, we're saying not merely that he has the same kind of nature as the Father, just like you have the same kind of nature as I do, but we are numerically separate, right? Mm -hmm. Your body is not my body, though it's the same kind of nature. Well, Scripture teaches that the very same essence that belongs to the Father is the essence of the Son. In Colossians 2, 9, it says, In Christ dwells all the fullness of the deity in bodily form. So he possesses the entire fullness of the Father. So it's not as if the Father has this essence and then the Son has the same kind of essence. It's the very essence of the Father that is possessed by the Son, that is possessed by the Spirit. See, mm-hmm. that goes beyond just saying they're three parts. It, they're distinct persons, but they're one in essence. 
And that, that's radical. I mean, again, it goes beyond anything we encounter in our experience. So it might be true to say something like, well, sometimes people will say things like, oh, this is not rational in the sense that it, uh, some people want to say it's contrary to reason, but really all they're saying is it's contrary to experience. So here's what I mean. If somebody told you that a unicorn exists, mm-hmm. that's something that's contrary to your experience. You don't know of a unicorn in your experience, but there's nothing irrational about a unicorn, right? The, the, the concept is perfectly rational. It's the idea of a horse with, a, with a one horn, right? The, there's nothing illogical about a unicorn. If God wanted to make a unicorn, he could have, right? But mm-hmm. so what I'm getting at is it may be the case that the kind of God we're talking about, the triune God, is beyond anything we experience in terms of created reality, but there's nothing irrational about that about God being three persons in one God. In fact, I would argue it's only in the doctrine of the Trinity that you have a God that is truly self-contained and and uh, doesn't need to look outside of himself for fulfillment, right? Uh, as people, we na- need interaction. We, uh, we're speaking beings. We're communicative beings. I, I have to speak to other people. I have to interact with other people. Otherwise, I'm just going to sort of, uh, you know, shrink in, in a sense. I mean, there, there's a sense in which I'm not fulfilled apart from others. Uh, remember what God said in the garden when he made Adam. He said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so mm-hmm. he made Eve, his wife, and she became with him one flesh. Right. So uh, the question is, is God a being that is incomplete and needs to look outside of himself to realize the kinds of things that we need in order for fulfillment. No, because God is triune. He is by nature a self-contained being. He has in himself uh, the fullness of communication, uh, the fullness I mean, of love, right? The persons of the Trinity love each other. Right? Everything you want to think about in, in terms of uh, personhood and the full realization of that is contained in God. And so God didn't create the world because he was lonely. He created the world out of the fullness of his triune life and to bring others into the enjoyment of that. Wow. Okay. So scripturally, where are you going to take us um, in regards to God being a triune God? Well, so, So here's what I was thinking. When you were reading at the beginning, Psalm 103, it's such a perfect text related to what I uh, thought to do, it's a text I love on this topic, but just as a reminder, two of the things that you read in Psalm 103, verse 14, or verse 13 says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so Mm -hmm. the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Notice that God there is called a father. And then later in Psalm 103, verse 17 says, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. So here you have mention of God as father and of his loving kindness. Now, here's uh, here's the verse that this made me think of. In Isaiah 63, I'm going to read verses 7 through 14, stopping along the way to make some observations. But notice, first of all, what it says in verse 7. It says, I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. Notice it mentions God's loving kindness and his compassion, just like Psalm 103. You'll mm-hmm. see how this becomes especially relevant in a moment. But I do want to stop here because you were reflecting on some of this as you read the psalm, and, and I can hardly think of this verse without without thinking of this and, and wanting to tell people of it. Notice the emphasis that's placed here on God's loving kindness. First of all, notice that it mentions the, the word is used twice in the verse, right? So mm-hmm. twice in, in the space of one verse. That already suggests the possibility that this is an important issue here in Isaiah 63. But secondly, notice this curious fact. The word is actually in the plural. It doesn't merely say loving kindness. It says loving kindnesses. And so it's as if the prophet doesn't think it adequate to mention the word once. He has to mention it twice. Mm -hmm. And it's not adequate to just mention it twice. He's got to mention it both times in the plural. But then a third fact is that in the Hebrew text, the word loving kindnesses is actually the first word of the sentence and the last word of the sentence. So the order of syntax in Hebrew is different. So you could have it as the beginning and ending of the sentence. And so, again, I mean, this is clearly being emphasized by Isaiah. He talks about the overwhelming, overflowing kindness, loving kindness of God. This is our God. He's full of kindness, full of loving kindness. Mm -hmm. What he has in view here is the Exodus. 
The Exodus was that foundational moment when God rescued the people of Israel in fulfillment of the promises that he made to the patriarchs. Remember in Exodus 3, it says that God saw their affliction. He took note of it. He heard their outcries to him, and he came down. He had compassion on them. So he came down to save them in response to their cry. Now, the reason Isaiah is reflecting on this is because Israel, at the time of Isaiah, was in a very pitiable condition. Mm -hmm. Her situation was not like it had been in the past when God rescued them. And so he's bemoaning their current situation. He's looking back to the past saying, this is how it was, and now look at things. And he's crying out to God because he wants that same God to come and do for Israel what he had done for them in the past. He wants God to redeem them. So another way of expressing this is saying he wants God to bring about a new exodus, a mm. new and better redemption, something greater than he had done in the past. But it's the same God that he wants to do this. Okay. Now, one more element I want to throw in here before moving on is when you look at the book of Exodus, a constant refrain throughout the book is that God is doing these things. That is all the stuff that he's doing to deliver Israel from Egypt pummeling Egypt with one plague after another, and then all the miraculous things he does to deliver Israel from their clutches, opening the waters, right, uh, parting the waters of the Red Sea, causing them to pass over on dry ground. All of these things God is doing so that, here's the constant refrain, so that you will know that I am the Lord. So, so yeah. God is doing this so that they'll know I'm the Lord. That's, that's who I am. And th this, this demonstrates who I am. This, so watch what Isaiah says about this God who saved them. In verse 8, it says, For he said, Surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. So notice that the God who has loving kindness upon them refers to them as his sons. This entails that he is, in this respect, a father, right? So here you already have, entailed by this language, the notion of God as father, at least to the people of Israel. Now, as Christians, we know that God's fatherhood transcends even this. He is ultimately the eternal father, right? The father of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he has eternally begotten. That's taught throughout Scripture, Psalm 2, Proverbs 30, numerous places. But for now, just note that God is portrayed as a father in this context. And he mm -hmm. said he'll become their savior. Now to, notice verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Okay, now we have to pause here for a moment and reflect on this phraseology. What does it mean to refer to the angel of his presence? Well, first of all, the term angel. A lot of Christians stumble at, at, at this point because we're used to using the word in the 21st century, and for a long time this has been the case. We're used to using the term angel exclusively for created heavenly beings, uh, angelic creatures. And mm -hmm. it's not that that's a wrong use of the word. It's that it's a very uh, restricted use of a much broader term. Uh, for ex and, and I think we all know this in other moments. So, for example, remember in Revelation 2 and 3, it says, uh, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira or the angel of the church. You know, over and over again, it says to the angel of the church. You'll hear some commentators or pastors say that could mean an angel that's given the charge of guarding a church, or it could refer to a pastor of the church, right? Why? Because the word angel just means a messenger, right? Somebody who's conveying a message. So John the Baptist in, in the Gospels is referred to as a messenger who's preparing the way for somebody who's coming after him. John the Baptist is not a heavenly winged creature, right? Mm -hmm. He's just a, he's a messenger. So the word doesn't really tell you anything about the kind of being that's in view. It's a term you have to determine from the context what kind of being is in view. Well, the, the, the significant thing here is that the word angel is, it says, the angel of his presence saved him. Somehow this angel is God's presence. So this angel isn't merely a human being like John the Baptist or a pastor of a church. And this seems to go well beyond what might be said, say, of an angelic creature. This, this one is his presence. If you go back to Exodus 3, at the Exodus, remember, it's, uh, Moses says, what is your name? And the response given is, I am who I am. Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Well, if you go back in the context, Exodus 3, 2, it says that it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in the midst of a bush that was on fire but not consumed. 
And then it says Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then God spoke to him from the midst of the bush and says, take off your sandals. The place on which you're standing is holy ground. What I'm driving at is this is no ordinary created angel. This is a theophany. It's a divine person. This is the one who came to Moses to lead them out of Egypt. So now notice this. You now have two persons in Isaiah 63 that Isaiah said was responsible for delivering Israel from Egypt, and both of them are divine persons. You have the Father who saved them by means of the angel of his presence, the one who declared himself to Moses as, I am who I am. Now notice how it goes on. It says, in his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. So by means of this one, God redeemed and saved the people. And then verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. There's the third person of the Trinity. Wow. So, so far you have Father, the angel of his presence, and mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. Now, now let me say one thing really quickly before I get too far and forget this. There's a, uh, remember I mentioned that the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson, or excuse me, to Manoah, the father of Samson. Samson or Manoah asked him his name. I mentioned that word is only ever used for God and things that God does. Well, there's a there's an interesting usage of this that has special relevance here. And you're going to the lights are going to go off here in a moment. Uh, in Isaiah 9, 6, you have a great messianic prophecy. And there the coming son, the Messiah, is given a fourfold name or some people would say it's six names. But that's a, another matter for another time. But Isaiah 9, 6 says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? Mm-hmm. And then it goes on to say, this is the name by which he will be called, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, right? Father of eternity, prince of peace, and so forth. Do You notice the word wonderful there? The promised Messiah, the coming son, is called wonderful. That name I said that is exclusive to God. The name that the angel of the Lord gave to himself when asked by Manoah. Manoah said, what is your name? And he said, why do you ask my name? It is beyond comprehension or it is wonderful. That's my name. My name is wonderful. And so here you have the angel of his presence in Isaiah 63 together with the father and the Holy Spirit. And this is the one that Isaiah said saved Israel at the Exodus, that event by which God said he was making himself known to his people. So this is how God made himself known to the people of Israel in the past. Now, remember what I said? I said this is a passage where Isaiah is looking back to the past in in order to cry out to God and ask him, who's the same God, he doesn't change, to do for his people in the future or, or then, he's calling upon God, uh, what he had done for them. He wants them, God, to, to restore Israel. And and ultimately, since that former event didn't bring Israel into that, uh, it, it fell short of, of bringing Israel to everlasting rest. And so really, Isaiah is praying for God to do something far greater, right? He wants it to be something that goes well beyond what God had done before. Uh, and you see that all throughout this section of Isaiah, where Isaiah says that God is going to do something greater. It's going to make the former work pale by comparison. G- go read Isaiah 43 uh, if, if, if you want an example of that. Uh, but, but here's why this is all interesting. You remember what Paul says in Galatians 4? It's just one of many passages that speak to this. In Galatians 4, Paul speaks of the fullness of times right? The fullness of the times. He speaks of how God in the past had dealt with Israel and he used the law like a tutor, a a pedagogue to lead them by the hand to the gospel, right? So the law was given to lead people to to the truth as it is in Jesus. But notice what he says in verses four through six. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem, there's that word that uh, Isaiah used in Isaiah 63, so mm-hmm. that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we, we might receive the adoption as sons. Remember, God took Israel to himself as sons at the Exodus? Mm-hmm. Here's, I, uh, here's Paul reflecting on the same reality, but now in its new covenant context, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, and the word that he uses for send forth here is particularly strong in Greek. It's ex apostelain. You can hear the word apostle in there. Apostelain is an infinitive form. It means to send. But this word has the word ex out from added to the beginning of it. So it's, as I said, especially strong. It means God sent out from himself his son made of a woman. So here's the reason this is so important. It means that he was the son as such prior to being sent forth. He doesn't 
come into being in the womb of Mary, he's already the son. He's sent out from the father. And as a result of being sent out, he's made of a woman. Mm-hmm. And the, the clincher is notice how the passage goes on. It says, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's the Holy Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the spirit doesn't come into existence in our hearts, right? He already exists and is sent forth into our hearts, right? He exists and is sent forth, and that results in the spirit dwelling in our hearts. And so you have the same language used for the son that's used for the spirit. The son and the spirit exist with the father and are sent out by and from him in order to accomplish redemption. This is the fulfillment of what Isaiah prayed for. Wow. The, the, the triune God saved Israel in the past at the Exodus and then accomplished a far greater redemption at uh, the in the first century when the son came forth, took on our nature, died on the cross. That was his Exodus, his departure. That's what the word Exodus means. Uh, that was his departure. He, he, he died for us and he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he poured out the Holy Spirit upon us. And now we cry out as sons of God through Christ, Abba, Father. Wow. Wow. That is so good. It's so rich. I need to watch this program again just to hear you say all that and read the scriptures along with you. I mean, this is so good. It's trying to repeat what you said that's going Mm. to be hard outside of the Holy Spirit. We can't do anything. I mean, we really need the Holy Spirit's guidance as we walk through this, but that is so good. Um, Did you want to take it further or are we... Are we complete in it? So one thing I would say is this. I I really think that when people get a handle on this, it really opens up a lot of things. So, for example, I I know a lot of people will point to certain passages of Scripture that are relevant to the Trinity, but are not on as strong a footing when it comes to having to give a defense when those things are challenged. So, for example— a lot of people will bring up passages like Genesis one twenty six at the creation right. of man, where God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Uh, another passage similar to that is Genesis 3.22. Upon the fall of man, God said, behold, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. There again, God speaks in the plural. Genesis 11.7, God said, come, let us go down and there confound their language. Again, speaking in the plural. Isaiah 6, God said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Here you have God speaking in the plural. And there are other instances of plural language in the Hebrew that don't come through in English for various reasons. But these are well known because they're right there in our English translations. And so a lot of people know to quote these, and I think they're right to do so, relevant to the Trinity. But when people challenge it, they tend to not have a robust response. So sometimes people will say things like, well, it's anachronistic to read these passages as a reference to the Trinity. That's like you're reading the, the New Testament back into the Old Testament. Well, well first of all, if it's a, a if it's a professing Christian making this objection, this is already bad and problematic. And our response to them ought to be, why do you reject the New Testament explanation? You know, when the New Testament teaches, for example, if Genesis one teaches that God created man in his image and did so speaking of a plurality, right? Let us make man in our image. And the New Testament tells you that the son was involved in creation, right? Uh, Genesis or John one, one in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. The word was God. All things became through him, right? All things Mm -hmm. came into being through him without him. Nothing came into being that has come into being right there. You're told the son was involved in creation Mm -hmm. Uh, in Colossians 1, it says all things were created by him and for him, meaning the son, the firstborn. Hebrews 1 says uh, uh, the father created all things by the son. Over and over again, the New Testament ascribes creation to the son. Why would a Christian reject the New Testament explanation and, and fish around for some other explanation? So that's already bad. And even before you get to the New Testament, you have Old Testament testimony to the involvement of the other persons of the Trinity in creation. So I mentioned the sun in the new. Here's the spirit in the old. In, in Psalm 10430, it says you send forth your spirit and they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Uh, Job 34 says the spirit of God has made me. The breath of the almighty gives me life. So the sun and the spirit, according to scripture, created man. Why fish around again for another explanation of this plural language in the creation of man when Scripture explains it? But the other thing is, notice the Spirit is present 
in Genesis 1. In, in verse 2 already at the creation, it says the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the waters. In the context, there's already a, a person present with the Father to whom he could have spoken. And, and so what I'm saying, though, is in light of something like Isaiah 63, Isaiah is giving us an understanding of who God is already, right? Already in the Old Testament before the New. So it's not anachronistic to see the Trinity in Genesis 1. Isaiah is telling us himself as an Old Testament prophet who this God is. It's the Father, the angel of his presence, and the Holy Spirit. And notice, he's saying this is how God revealed himself at the Exodus. Who is the original audience of Genesis 1? Okay, now, I, I'm asking uh, this question. It's somewhat rhetorical. I don't like putting people on the spot, but I want people to think about it before I answer it, right? Who's the original audience of the words of Genesis 1? Now, a lot of people will think, well, these are the words that God spoke at creation, so there was nobody there, right? He's about to create man. But I'm asking about the words that you find in Genesis, where it says, God said, let us make man. Those words, they're in scripturation, they're, right, they're being written down. Those were written by Moses, right? He, right? he, of course, is writing what God revealed to him. They do reflect what God spoke at the time of creation, but... What I'm driving at is he's right. Moses is writing them to the Exodus generation. So the original audience of those words, they weren't devoid of a knowledge of God as father, the angel of his presence and the Holy Spirit. This is the God who saved them and made himself known to them at the Exodus. So when they read Genesis 1, they didn't think, who's the us here? Who's the our? They thought, well, of course, this is the God who saved us. This is the God who made himself known to us. This is our God. So. Wow. I think this unlocks just a, a, a whole bunch of things, and it gives you a basis for demonstrating it, not just claiming that certain texts are about the Trinity, but now giving uh, a context to all of that and saying this is the context within which we're to read this sort of thing. And so we're, we're firmly within our God-given contextual rights to, to assert a Trinitarian understanding at these points. Well, I will never use the egg in the water again. <laughs> And I love what you said. Now, I'm just going to throw something else at you. Um, I, we've got just a little bit of time. Um, last year, um, I was at Calvary Anaheim and, and Edward Delcor was there speaking. And after he spoke, um, he, he was talking about something in Revelation. I can't remember exactly. And um, I said to him, you know, you just we see that right there in Revelation, um, it talks about God is at the throne and Jesus is at his right hand, you know, and I said, how will we, what will we see when we get to heaven, when we look at the Holy Spirit? And um, I, I'll tell you what he said after I ask you that. Yeah, so there's difficulty when it comes to some of the texts that we might think of along these lines. The one you mentioned is, is a standard go-to one. You also have Daniel 7 where it mentions the Ancient of Days, it talks about the Son of Man. Daniel 7, Daniel's book really is, is one of the, well, it's the book of the Old Testament that's known as an apocalyptic book, right? And in terms of its genre, right, you have historical narrative, you have poetic books. Daniel's an apocalyptic book. So is the book of Revelation. So you have the same genre in both cases. And the reason I mention that is because apocalyptic literature in its very nature is graphic. It's uh, giving visual imagery uh, in order to communicate certain things. And it's it's not intended to be pressed literally. Right. So, for example, the text you mentioned, uh, one of the places, at least in Revelation, that you could have had in mind where it mentions the Lord and, and uh, uh, the son is is Revelation 5, where it talks about the lamb, right? And, and and John says that he sees a lamb standing in the midst of the throne as if it had been slain, and he talks about the lamb having seven horns and so forth. Well, we wouldn't at that point press the language literally, would we? We wouldn't say that we're going to look and see Jesus with seven horns coming out of his head any more than, say, Revelation 1, when it talks about a, a sword proceeding out of his mouth, is intended to, to, for us to think that there's literally a sword hanging out of his mouth the sword represents the word of God, right? The horns represent his strength and his perfection. There's seven of them. These are symbolic ways of describing things about him. And so what, what I'm getting at here is, while this does communicate truth to us, it's not intended to communicate, this is exactly what you're going to see when you're in heaven, right? Uh, so I would be very cautious when it comes to that. What we do know, remembering that, that Paul says that our, our knowledge now is but in part, 
-hmm. but, but, but not for this reason should we think, oh, well, you know, uh, I know some people who think that if you say certain things aren't going to be the case in heaven, then it's kind of a, a, a anticlimactic or a letdown, you know, like if you're not going to be married in heaven or not. Gonna, and but scripture teaches that, you know, we are uh, we are undervaluing things if we if we think that heaven in order to be great needs to have all the best things of this life when God has even greater things beyond our comprehension in store. And so when I say, well, it's not going to necessarily look in terms of the imagery given in revelation exactly like that. It doesn't mean that there, there's not going to be a reality to the, our experience that far exceeds this. Uh, so I'm just cautioning us here a little bit. Um, we do know that our, our experience in the new heavens and new earth will involve intimate communion with the triune God. And the imagery that's used is, remember, it speaks of, of uh, it, it talks about God, his throne, and then of the river that proceeds from beneath the throne. And I take it that's symbolic of the spirit, meaning, uh, and you see this kind of imagery in the Old Testament, too, where there's this water that proceeds from the throne. Uh, so you don't necessarily get a, a, uh, a statement in the book of Revelation like, uh, you know, uh, talking like you have of the father and the son where it talks about seeing the Lord as the ancient of days. And then the son is a lamb. Uh, but you do have some imagery there that, that involves the spirit, uh, but it doesn't give a more anthropomorphic type image. Uh, so I'm just saying that uh, we sell it short if we if we want to say that the imagery is intended to be taken in a crudely literal way. I, I think that we will encounter and experience God in a way that far transcends uh, the limited visual picture that can be presented in Revelation. And think about, for example, how John himself in the book of Revelation is told he can't reveal the what the voices of the seven thunders uttered, right? If, if he couldn't recount that to us, imagine how much more the vision of God will transcend that. I, and so I don't feel myself adequate to say exactly what this will look like, and so I just refrain from saying, but I do know that it will involve a, a knowledge of God and an experience of him that far exceeds uh, anything that's true in this life and that will satisfy uh, the very end of our creation, right? This is why we were made is for him. And I don't think we're going to be disappointed when we get there. And, uh, you know, so I think that's, well, I, that's what I, I, yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, the, there's thought that not everything's revealed to us, just like you, you just said. And so, um, and so we can make something up in our head but we're we're going to what I think is we will know him when we hear him because we hear him. Right. We hear him now. He speaks to us and we will know him when we hear him. Well, I don't know what, what he'll look like, but we'll know. Because I might have. Yeah, I might have left a little bit to be desired. Well, and I think no matter what I say, I'm going to leave something to be desired. <laughs> but. Uh, one thing I will say is there's nothing problematic about God revealing himself in a palpable way, that is, to our mm -hmm. senses, because we see in Scripture that God reveals himself to the angels and redeemed sinners in palpable ways like that. But God himself can't be reduced to those visible manifestations because he transcends heaven and earth, all created reality, right? Exactly. Can't contain him. And so we do see the angels around his throne, for example. So there is a throne in heaven uh, and and God reveals himself and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Right. The train of his robe fills the temple. So I'm not trying to say there won't necessarily be any appearance, but uh, I just I feel myself inadequate. Uh, and I, I feel somewhat like the uh, prophet Ezekiel, although I'm not a prophet, but following his words in, in Ezekiel one, if go, go read the description there of the appearance of God, he keeps saying he, he doesn't feel adequate to, to say, this is what I saw. He kept saying it was like this. It was like that. It was as that he, he wants to constantly modify it and say, not quite right. It was, it was more than this. It was better than that. So he keeps saying like, as similar to, right. He uses these, uh, similes, uh, instead of making direct assertions. And, and there were times in the Bible that there was something physical. Um, the Holy Spirit falls on them like a fire mm -hmm. um, in Acts. There's um, the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus um, like a dove. Um, there's, there is some physicality about it, but it's not necessarily him. I mean, yeah, it's, it's can't qualities be, it can't be about reduced. him. Yeah, yeah, he can't be reduced to those. I mean, it's sort of like Solomon 
first Kings eight, he builds a temple where God said he'd dwell with his people. And then Solomon says, will you really dwell in this house that I've built? And, and Solomon's not denying the truth of God's promise. He knows that he will, but he's marveling over it because as he goes on to say, heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain you how much less this house, which I have built. So there is a reality to God dwelling in a special way in certain places like the temple or among believers, but in no case can he be limited to that. And so we have to recognize all of that involves a condescension on the part of God. He's lowering himself to condescend to our weakness, to condescend to our finitude. Anthony, as always, I love hearing you talk. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I know it's afternoon where you are. I want to thank you um, listeners for joining us today. And you can replay this anytime you want to on the different venues. I'd like to speak to those that are out there that have never made a decision for Christ. And today might be the day for you. But follow me in this very simple prayer or, or talk to him yourself in your own words. And it might go like this. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Forgive me of the sins of the past, present, and future. Come into my life. Live with me forever. Guide me through this life that I walk in now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have said that prayer or something similar, call us here at Hope Radio, will you? Or write me on the road with Jesus. Now, if you're watching this on either YouTube or Facebook, I want you to take note of the um, <clears throat> the conference that's coming up that Anthony is going to be at as well as um, other speakers. It's right there um, on the Facebook page. It's called Our Strong Tower, On the Road with Jesus, but on Our Strong Tower. It's September 8th through the 10th this year, coming up next month. And there are um, eight speakers that are listed there. Anthony is one of them. And other people will be there to join in. So please sign up for Our Strong Tower, September 8th through the 10th and there is a um, q is it qr code there that you can just get your phone and and sign up that way uh, but thank you again anthony for such a wonderful talk gotta go we're way over time thank you listeners for joining us today bye for now on the road with jesus we love you thank you for being here today for on the road with jesus with your host Rody fisher Every week, you'll hear experiences and testimonies from her and her friends as they share their journey with Jesus. You'll see that you're not alone in your search for God, your victories with Him, or your failures. If you have a question about today's show, email Rody Fisher at rawfisher at ontheroadwithjesus.com, spelled R-A-H-F-I-S-H-E-R at ontheroadwithjesus.com or leave a voicemail at 951-817-0094. That's 951-817-0094. On the Road with Jesus is sponsored by Global Expressions Language Project. Learn more at asquaredlamps.org. That's the letter A, squaredlamps.org. Be sure to join us each week at this same time for more On the Road with Jesus, hosted by Rody Fisher. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.